Nicole. And this is a different tech where two black women talk tech. So this week we have a pretty exciting episode. We're going to be digging into tech compensation packages and negotiation tips. Um, so I don't know about you, Nicole, but when I talk to my friends who aren't in tech, I find that our salaries are just a lot different. Um, not even just from like a monetary standpoint, but just in terms of what they're offering or like what's included in the offer letter itself. Yeah, definitely. The structure of the compensation packages can be very difficult for people to understand. I know I was very confused when I was starting my first job. For sure. Yeah. So hopefully this episode will kind of allow you to kind of understand things a little bit more better as you're looking at different offers, no matter what stage of the tech journey you're in. So let's start with the first thing, which is your base salary, which is the salary that you are going to be bringing in on a biweekly, biannual, well, not biannually, monthly, <laughs> or a biweekly or monthly basis. Yeah, so this is pretty much set where, and also we'll discuss negotiating tips later. But if you're going to get paid 90K is your base, the minimum you'll make, unless the company shuts down or something, is 90K. Mm-hmm. And this can change depending on where you are in the country or the world. And a new concern for remote workers is sometimes if you move, your salary will change. Like if you're moving from New York to Kansas, they might give your salary a cost of living adjustment. So again, even within the same company, moving to different offices can change your salary. Yeah, but at a very general level, you can guarantee that this is the money that you are going to be bringing in on a consistent basis from your company. Yes. And then we have bonuses. So you can, I've seen quarterly bonuses. I've seen annual bonuses. Performance bonuses. Yeah. So yes, random bonuses. So (laughs) Those are kind of the extra money that you don't know if it'll necessarily be happening unless your contract specifies that you will be getting it. So I've seen in some cases where it does say in the contract, like you will be getting a quarterly bonus based on X percentage or whatever. Um, But I've also seen contracts where it's very vague as to whether or not you will be getting a bonus. Yeah, a lot of times you'll see up to 10%. So it could be, you could get less. And a lot of these are tied to performance. So at your quarterly check-in with your manager, depending on how you're doing, it will affect your bonuses. There's usually a, a max percentage you can get if you get a good review, and it decreases based on how much gets taken off. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's also determined on how much money the company has to give bonuses, for example. So I've seen cases where people didn't get bonuses, not because of their performance, um, but more so just because they didn't have room in the budget to give. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, um, especially when you're like planning financially. Um, but financially, you should never really plan for a bonus because... That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if you're... Like, it's just... The bonuses are good additions, but you don't know that you may or may not get it based on what's going on. Yeah, I wouldn't. I'm just throwing numbers out. But if there's a possibility to get a 50K bonus, I wouldn't start living like you have that extra money in your account right now. And also for bonuses, some levels don't get them. I remember in my first job, I was an E1 and they weren't eligible. 
So it can depend mm. on what level you are, if you can even get these bonuses. Interesting. Um, and then there's other monetary benefits, um, like a 401k match. And a 401k match is simply where you put money for your retirement um, and you put a certain percentage of your paycheck every time you get a paycheck to your, your retirement and your company matches that amount. So it's like you're doubling the money that you are putting in for retirement. Yeah, it's free money. So mm-hmm. let's say your company matches at 3%. If you put in 3% of your salary, you have 6% in that account. And I would, unless you're in a very dire financial situation, I would definitely participate in the match to the maximum because that's free money. If I have a dollar and someone says, hey, do you want another one? I'm not going to say no. Yeah. But yes. keep in mind, we are not financial advisors. We're not. <laughs> um, this is just kind Do of works for you. what we've learned over the course of time. Next one is profit sharing. And again, this is one that similar to bonuses where it may or may not happen. But a lot of times these happen at the end of the year or during the holiday season where the company will give you a percentage. It could be, oh, everyone gets 10%. It depends on your company. And some companies like don't have these where it's again money that could appear, but maybe not as well. Yeah. And then there's a couple other ones where like it's not really included in your salary, but it's just things to keep in mind, I guess. So like having a development budget where you're able to kind of get resources to kind of further your education while you're still working or um, getting health insurance or your premium health insurance plan i've seen in some cases where it is paid for or in other cases where it's not paid for but you still have to have it or they subsidize it in some sort of way um so that wouldn't be factored into your total compensation package but i think those are still benefits to keep in mind and are oftentimes stated in your contract as well and can be added to your contract if you're missing it the development budget is one i really enjoy I, before Corona, I would travel to conferences across the country. I actually went to Europe for a conference through my budget. And it's great because you can meet developers you normally wouldn't have the chance to see. You can see some great talks. Depending on, like some companies obviously won't have these budgets. But if they do, I would definitely try to use them. And they usually reset each year. So you can get some nice airline miles and get reimbursed. Or you yeah. can, at a smaller scale, you can buy a course or also a tuition reimbursement is a big one that some companies have where mm-hmm. you can go back for a relevant degree and they'll pay up to a certain point, which you might want to take advantage of if you really have higher education plans. And then additional um, perks that sometimes tech companies allow is like free gym memberships, catered lunches, nutritionists, dry cleaning, childcare. Yeah, I actually knew someone that their company gave them a free Equinox membership. If you don't know what that is, it's a gym that charges like $400 a month. That's super nice. It's super expensive. Like I, I can not afford Equinox, but depending on the company, they might give you some deals. And also through health insurance, because they don't want you making claims. Your health insurance might actually have gym discounts if you inquire. 
And then some companies offer free lunches or free dinners. Yeah, that's usually the bigger companies. A lot of them will have cafeterias. So you can save a lot of money through that. But also some catches are that to get the free dinners, you have to be there past a certain time, which is like seven or so. So they really want you to work kind of later than the nine to five to be able to get that dinner. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you're not buying groceries all the time. And also it's Corona. So I don't know if these will exist in the future. Yeah. If everyone goes remote. And then there's some other ones like having nutritionists or free dry cleaning. I've seen some companies offer free childcare, um, matching charities, freezing eggs. And those are things that may not actually directly appear in your compensation when you get like your offer letter, but you can ask about as well. And they should be able to provide you with like their employee handbook in terms of like what they do offer and what they don't offer as well. And most of these will be in your or be available in a bigger company because obviously they have more money and more space. But it's very varied. I mean, wherever I've been, the extra perks, I mean, they're not the same in between friends I've talked to. There are a lot of different perks. They're different everywhere. And also depending on where you live. But like going back to um, kind of monetary offer letter stated amounts, um, sometimes tech companies offer stock options or RSUs. These are very confusing. Yeah. It took me a while (laughs) to to figure these out. Yeah. So if you were also confused like we were, stock options let you purchase stocks at a discounted rate if you so choose to, meaning that you don't get the stocks, but if you want to purchase them, you can purchase these stocks at a very at a lower rate than someone who would be purchasing the stocks outside of the company. And then you have RSUs, which are also stocks, but they're actually giving you shares to the company in the form of either stocks or cash based on a particular schedule. So that's actual, like you don't have to buy them they're buying them for you and you get them. Yeah. So the vesting schedule is very important because they could write in your offer letter. Okay. Um, X amount of stock over four years. So it could be each month, each year that these stocks actually open up for you to buy them or for you to get them because they want you to stay and get the whole quantity of stocks by staying four or so years. Right. And then there's also, I think, when you have stock options or RSUs, like that's where you really need a financial advisor or a financial specialist yes, for because there's definitely tax implications from having this extra money um, as it is like as you would have tax implications if you're investing in the stock market or things like that. So um, that's something to keep in mind. Also, keep in mind that it's not money like it's based on the market and you never know how the market is going to happen especially if you're pre-ipo because Mm -hmm. will your company make it to ipo or is the stock price doing well right now right exactly yeah at a previous job our stock was not doing well at all so my it's some weird tax stuff but my rsus ended up losing money so i could claim them as, as a loss on my taxes but if they made money, then obviously there are taxes on that. So again, get a financial advisor. That's probably the only year that I went in 
had an accountant do my taxes because it was very difficult to do my on my own. I didn't really know what I was doing. And the IRS will come after you if you mess up. Um, So definitely talk to someone if you're getting into these fancier stock options and RSUs. Yeah. And I think also like going back to that, stock options and RSUs have very different implications. In my opinion, when it is a company, you're getting stocks or RSUs on a company that's already being traded versus stocks or RSUs on companies that are being held privately. Because if you're getting stock options or RSUs on a privately held company, you don't know what that's actually going to be like if slash when they IPO. Um, And so I think it's really important if you are taking that or if you're trying to negotiate that, you look into like, especially for privately held companies, like what series they're in, because that can give you a very big indication as to if that money is actually going to be valuable to what you expect it to be. Yeah, definitely want to emphasize this is all realized money. A lot of times we get recruiters that say, oh, like this company is valued at $200 million. And with the stock options in your compensation package, this is worth like 25000 And again, this is not real money. If you're not traded, it's not, it's not like you can sell stocks at a pre-IPO company that you don't know if they will ever go public or no one can tell the future until what price will go public at. Think of this as imaginary money that may or may not come to fruition. There's different series, right? So like maybe like getting there is advantages of getting into companies early. Like we've seen people get that started working at Slack before Slack IPO'd and things like that. And they're doing very well for themselves. So let's kind of go into the different series and kind of things to think about when you're hearing companies are at series A or they raise series B funding or something like that. Yeah, let's. Uh, so what's the first? Usually when companies go into startup mode, they usually raise money. Like there's pre-seed funding, which doesn't necessarily, doesn't always get counted, but it's funding that before VCs really get involved in some capacity. And then you go into series A. And also series pre-seed a- can really come from anyone. So if you hear of founders getting loans from their parents or friends to just get it off the ground, that can be pre-seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, pre-seed doesn't necessarily mean a lot of companies don't even count their pre-seed funding when they're talking to people. They usually are like, oh, we raised this amount in Series A or this amount in Series B. So yeah, pre-seed is really what starts the company. It's usually kind of what gives the gets the initial people who are starting this company paid or paying people to kind of build the MVP. And then you have from there Series A. And Series A is usually uh, coming from VCs, um, but it is where a lot of startups uh, kind of really get their start. And it's also where a lot of startups fail. Oh, interesting. Just because of the the maturity of the company at that time or... Well, I think like when you raise series A, you're going off of the fact that like, this is a good idea. (laughs) And we want to see how this idea goes. And just like any business, not all businesses last, like, beyond three years, you know what I mean? So that's I think that's like the sweet spot, Uh, like not, not the sweet spot, but that's usually kind of where companies are like, all right, we have this idea, like we're ready to kind of take it off. We're ready to really build this out and make this like 
project, if they already have customers or they don't. Um, some people, I've seen cases where companies will raise Series A funding, not even ha- like with an MVP, <laughs> not even saying that they have like all of these customers that are trying to buy their product or anything like that. So once you get that money, then it's like, all right, now the real work has to begin. Like now you have to make sure that you're really like putting that in. And a lot of companies, unfortunately, don't make it beyond that because what they thought was a good idea ended up not being a really good idea or so. I mean, they that's usually kind of what happens. Like you're basically kind of putting money against something that you think will be profitable, but not everything ends up being profitable. Yeah, I think 90% of startups fail. Yeah. Within five years. So it's very risky. Yeah. So if they manage to make it into Series A, then they get into Series B funding, which is usually when companies have found their product market fit and they're looking to scale. Um, So I think when I see companies that are Series B, I'm like, all right, like there's a good chance that they're going to be here for a while. um, And they're really trying to like build out their team, build out more of their offering and they're really trying to like get more people yeah and if you end up joining a company pretty early you usually will get more stock options mm-hmm. and let's say you're part of the 10 percent where the startup doesn't fail and maybe maybe it goes public that's when people become billionaires and millionaires depending on what the company listed for like if you're the first 50 employees at facebook when they went public they were billionaires like, I'm not sure what number they okay, billionaires be. is a stretch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really no, no, Facebook people became, became billionaires. Wow. Yeah. So, again, is every company Facebook? No. Most companies will not list that high. But you can make a lot of money if you join earlier. But like Shoyu said, there's a danger of the company collapsing. Yeah. I mean, nothing is guaranteed. But, yeah. And then the next thing is, like, Series C after that where it's when companies are like looking to expand what they're currently offering. So maybe they've started off building robots and now they want to build vacuums. So usually they'll like get company, like they'll get more funding so that they can expand beyond building robots. Um, And that can mean that they're acquiring new businesses or they're just trying to get more people in to be able to, Expand, which is usually what they want to increase their valuation so that they can IPO. And so, yeah, usually companies IPO then. And then there are cases where companies will raise like D, E, and even F funding. But what I think a good thing to ask when you are interested in startups or trying to work for a startup is pay attention to one, how how much they've raised or what series they're in, because that could give you a good indication of like, how profitable they're trying to be or wanting to be because there are also companies that have no interest in ipoing some companies are really existing to get acquired so that they can make their exit um so that's something that you can even ask a recruiter i think another thing when you're looking at startups to ask is how much runway they have meaning like if they didn't have to raise if they couldn't raise any more money how long could they last it's usually not very long as well But that's something to ask. Like a lot of people don't ask those questions. And depending on what situation you're in, I wouldn't want anyone that I know personally or you out there listening um, to (laughs) start working at a startup and then six months later be out of a job because they ran out of money. 
um, as well. Yeah, if someone just got funding and they just finished around, that's a promising sign. But if they're talking about their Series B or something that was last year, definitely inquire more about, okay, you're here now. Are you going for another Series soon? Or like you said, what's the runway for this money? Because also some syrups run not the best financially. So they might not have as much runway as you would have expected. So it's good to know before anything bad happens. So we have covered a lot of um, these different compensations amounts and different companies. So let's kind of dive in a little bit to negotiation. And can you even negotiate any of these things? Yeah, I definitely think that answer is yes, try, but maybe no. I mean, most companies will negotiate with you to a point, but depending on their needs and urgency, it might be easier for some people than others. Where if you're coming in at an entry level, you probably don't have as much negotiating power. Even though you definitely should. I negotiated my first job and I got more stock options. But once you get higher and higher, you would definitely have a lot more leeway to negotiate. I'll show you, let's say uh, we're in the negotiating room. What would you be negotiating? I probably would either try, I wouldn't, the first thing I would want to negotiate is my base, just because I feel like I'm very, like, I'm fairly risk adverse. Um, so, like, if there's one thing I want to know to try to guarantee as much as possible is, like, how much money is coming into my bank account. Um, but if I felt like it wasn't really something that could be negotiated, then I would probably negotiate, like, a bonus, like a sign-on bonus. I've never gotten a compensation package that had, like, stock options or RSUs. So I don't really know. I don't. I don't know enough about them personally in my life to really like negotiate them as well. What about you? Yeah, I mean they're negotiable. I would think uh, I would go in assuming that everything is negotiable, where you can mm-hmm. negotiate for. Like, let's say they don't take to a base salary negotiation. You can try and negotiate for more PTO, like you said, a signing bonus, um, RSU stock options, mm-hmm. an increased development budget, etc. So I would definitely come in thinking that. Everything is negotiable to a point. Yeah. Like if there's something written down in your contract or your offer letter, assume that you can negotiate. I've seen, I've actually um, know someone who negotiated both their base and their stock options. Um, And a good way to do that is it's a lot easier to negotiate when you have other offers in hand. So you can kind of compare. And then additionally, um, If you're leaving something at your previous company, I think bringing that into the negotiation table is a good one. So I know people who was like, well, I got paid. Um, I have to pay back my bonus that I got from this other company for leaving. So can I increase my bonus? Or people who are like, if I come to your company, I'm missing out on X amount of stock um by this value so i would like to be compensated for that or i'm missing out on this bonus because i'm here so i'd like to be compensated for that so it definitely is a lot easier to negotiate once you have something in hand because then you have at least something to compare about compare it to but i think also just evaluating what you really care about um like would you rather have more vacation negotiate that's something to negotiate um 
if you know that you're gonna do something every year at this time like making that known as well and saying that you want to do that um depending on where you're moving they're oftentimes moving stipends where either they'll give you a flat amount of money like here's ten thousand dollars to move or if you're part of a bigger company you're joining a bigger company they'll have contracts where they'll move you so if you're moving somewhere else definitely ask about that as well to see if you can possibly get one the only catch for these is most of the time if you leave before a certain period you'll have to pay part of that back so make sure you're ready to stay for like one or two years or if not make sure you've saved enough money to pay them back yeah definitely um, I think it's nice if companies move you because moving is expensive. And it is. Even moving, I feel like even no moving within of, New York City, it's so yeah. expensive. So I think no amount of money is really going to prepare you <laughs> for how much you're about to spend <laughs> to move sometimes. And it's stressful to move, too. It is. It definitely is. Let's talk about, I remember you discussed where you really concentrate on your base salary. So let's discuss on some strategies that people can use to negotiate that base salary. Uh, so I'll go first. The big one that I think it is to be prepared to always check your market value based on your location, your job level, your skills, et cetera. And you can check these on sites like Glassdoor, Levels FYI, which is great if you're entering a FANG company because they have a lot of salaries, a lot of locations. But I've seen even smaller companies, there are still people that post their salaries how long they've been there, where they are, et cetera. And pay scale is also another good one for that. So you can find out what this position is paying in the market and you can use that to determine how much you will negotiate for. And also don't be afraid to negotiate. I find a lot of people are really scared and think if they even attempt to negotiate, their offer will be withdrawn and the world's gonna end. And honestly, the worst thing that can happen is no. It's very rare that you try to negotiate and someone's just like, no, we're not doing this. The job's gone. And if they do that, that's probably not the company for you as well. Yeah, I remember when I first, because I didn't negotiate my first salary. I was like, <gasps> oh, okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, I did not. Um, but for my, like, my next job, um, I was afraid to negotiate. Like, I was so afraid. But it was, I think what made it nice is the recruiter was ready for me to negotiate. Like, she was like, okay, like, do you want anything else? <laughs> is there anything else? And I was like, oh, actually, yeah, I would like. Um, and I was like, oh, that's not bad. Um, it wasn't that bad. And I think that as long as you're not a jerk about it, like, I've seen something where someone was like, they just pulled up a link and sent like the link to the recruiter and was like- <laughs> There's the whole message. This Google says that you actually pay this, so you should pay me this. <laughs> um, and like like everything, be professional. Yeah, be realistic. If yeah. you're an E1, probably not gonna get $500,000 base. Use research to base where you're negotiating from. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's regardless of wherever you at, like, I think that there's this notion that, oh, just because you're in a area that doesn't have a higher cost of living as like New York City or the Bay, that that doesn't mean that you should be paid as much. And if you think you should be paid just like them, go for it. Like, not everyone wants to live there. And I hope that especially as more people are doing like 
remote work that like people still like advocate for themselves more because the money is still like you're still doing the same job especially if you're coming from the bay and then you're moving somewhere else um i think it's still i know plenty of people who have gotten bay area salaries and moved down south and kept their salary so in their bag yeah so definitely don't be afraid to to come back on that um as well you also aim for the stars as in a lot of times i see people you know i'd be happy with this amount but you know bump that up a bit i think i read somewhere where i think of a salary you'd be happy to get and bump it up ten thousand. some people go even more but you should definitely think of a salary that you'd be happy with based on your research based on where you think you're you are and you want to start that out higher because they're going to come back and try and negotiate negotiate with you so through that negotiating you're probably going to be bumped down a bit so if you start higher you might end up at the level you were hoping for. And another tip I found through some research is use a specific value. So instead of th- saying, I want to be paid $47,000, say I want to be paid $47,550 because it makes you seem more educated about your market value because you're using these exact numbers. Mm. And try to avoid a range because when you give a range, they're going to try to get you at the end of that the low end of your range just like give a number and try to negotiate from there and also don't be afraid to walk away again not everyone has this privilege if you really need this job but if you get multiple offers don't be afraid of saying hey you know your company's great but this other company's offering me more base or more stock or better health care and see what you can negotiate for because when there are other companies that want you as well people get into a bidding match yeah always leave your options open don't be afraid to walk away if you can and i really want to stress this is very important because the salary you negotiate for will affect you for the rest of your career if you start low it's very likely that you will end low so you know always be there for yourself first and know your worth you're worth it that was cool. Yeah, but <laughs> I think also asking around, like not even just like if you know people at the company, asking people what they're making at the company is helpful. Or if you know people um, outside in your industry, in your like comp, like in your city, the same level, et cetera, et cetera, like asking them what they're making, because a lot of times that's how people realize they are being underpaid. And especially for the black people listening to this, we are oftentimes underpaid. So it's important that you're asking all these other people what they're making because that's how you know and that's how you amplify your negotiating value. And I think a lot of times we don't think about it because we're like, oh, wow, like this is, or at least for me, it's like I never thought about it as much because I'm like, oh, wow, this is a lot of money or this is more money than what I thought or it's money that I know that I have more than enough to meet my needs and then some, but don't be afraid to ask for more. Yeah, it's definitely not a zero-sum game where if you make more, someone will make less. Like, they definitely have the money for your salary. There's an approved range that HR has, and when they give you a number, it's probably not the top of their range. So always negotiate. Like Shoya said, if you're black, if you're a woman, if you're any minority group, 
it's a very, it's a danger if you get underpaid and it happens a lot. So definitely be there for yourself. Yeah. You're your biggest advocate. Oh, also a great thing to do is to negotiate with friends where you do a fake negotiation where your friend's the recruiter, you're acting as yourself and see how you handle that process. And also I have helped friends during negotiation negotiations where they would tell me what the recruiter's asking and we talk it over and we'd be like, hey, you should ask for more of this. And it was actually, it was very successful. So if it's not uh, an immediate, like a phone call or something, and you have time to think of a response, definitely talk to other people in the industry, talk to friends and see how you can work out a good negotiation strategy. question for this week is what are the different types of software engineers so i get this question pretty often where people want to get into tech and they want to learn how to code but they're not really sure what language to learn um and i always say that it really depends on what you want to do um but some people don't know what they want to do so what are some of the i mean there's front-end engineer there's a back-end engineer but what else also Language skills most times can be transferred to different languages where you, if you know the basics of what an array is, what a variable is, what a loop is, it doesn't take that long to learn a different language. Again, if you're going to functional programming and you only know Python, that might be a little different. But I've worked in Ruby, I've worked in Python, I've worked in PHP, and it didn't take me that long to pick up these different languages. So don't think that oh, if I know this language, I'll never, it'll be hard to learn other ones. No, like honestly, just start with the language and you'll see that a lot of the concepts are transferable to other ones. Yeah, shameless plug. I actually do have a guide that kind of outlines like the yes, basic we love fundamentals <laughs> of uh, different coding languages. So I'll definitely link it in the show notes for y'all if y'all are curious. But um, there's DevOps engineers. DevOps engineers, development operations, usually in charge of a level below what a web developer is doing. So it's making sure systems don't go down. It's making sure systems are load balanced. Um, Just trying to make sure the infrastructure is sufficient for the application. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then there's um, data scientists which are usually um, training data that's being come in and kind of making these different models that are predicting kind of what people will be doing or providing different sorts of insights on different sort of things. There are also game development engineers where they can do a lot of different things. So there are graphic engine engineers where you really have to have your map together to do that. And game developers who are working on, let's say, game mechanics and different parts of game development process. So let's say you want to work at EA or something, you'd probably want to look into that. Yeah, so I think the important thing is like when trying to figure out what type of software engineer you want to be is think about what what problems you like to solve and then look up like you can literally look up like user interface 
engineer and then you'll see kind of what job descriptions come up um because there's so many um and there's things that are like working on like different specific parts of an application um do you i think a good question is like do you want to be more client facing versus working on stuff that are more internal to other engineers working on as well so there's so many more <laughs> than we didn't even cover but what's one of the interesting ones that you are interested in Ooh, um as a kid i did game development these awful flash games and flash isn't even around anymore but it was fun and also if you start somewhere you can always go somewhere else or learn about another field in your off time a lot of people start in one type of web uh one type of engineering and move around i have a friend who started in web development then she moved to devops and then she moved to ios development so in your career you'll probably move a couple times and also try to find out what you like to do as in i don't like front-end engineering at all i think i mentioned this a while ago but find what you like and what you don't like so you can avoid what you don't like and you can really go after what you do like but you only learn that through trying a couple roles yeah so don't be afraid to experiment um and don't be afraid to not like something because there's tons that you can do and also if your company isn't doesn't have the position available you really want you might want to consider moving most times if it's a big enough company there's usually freedom to move around to different teams but some places it might feel like you're stuck somewhere so that concludes this week's episode be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now yeah and make sure to follow us on instagram and twitter at a different tech and to send us your questions at a different tech at gmail.com and we might answer them Talk to you next week. Bye.